It's obviously much to catch up on, isn't there? Which is wonderful. Well, what a summer we had this week, right? It's kind of, I think it's finished. Um, but who else on Thursday spent most of the day hiding inside, avoiding the heat? Yes, I'm glad it's not just me. But I think that summer's one of those times where things generally feel like they slow down a little bit, don't they? For most of us, at least. And one of my favorite things about the summer is choosing my holiday reading. I'm not very good at reading books uh, the rest of the year, but the summer's the one time of the year that I feel like I have the time, the headspace to get lost in a story. To actually finish that book which has been on my bedside table for the last six months. Because everyone loves a good story, don't they? Stories have power to draw you in, to cause a reaction of your emotions, to bring people together. And so as we spend the next few weeks in a new sermon series on Jesus' stories, looking at the stories which he shared as he went around different towns and villages teaching people, let's be expectant that God wants to use this series and these stories to draw us into deeper relationship with him, to engage an emotional response in us, to provoke us to respond and act in some way. Because Jesus was a storyteller. He used parables or illustrative stories to explain complex, intangible concepts, making them relate to more familiar ideas so that people could begin to understand these great theological truths that he was trying to explain. And the parables which we're going to look at today are two of Jesus' shortest, but they are rich in meaning for us. And you can find them in Luke chapter 13, verses 18 to 21, which is on 1004, page, 1001, ugh, page 1046 in the Red Bibles, um, if you're not there already. And just to set the context of these two parables, Jesus has been teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath the Jewish holy day, and he's just healed a woman who's been crippled for 18 years. Verse 17 says, the people were delighted with all the wonderful things Jesus was doing. So let's read on together from verse 18 of chapter 13. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds perched in its branches. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 30 kilograms of flour until it worked all through the dough. And so, Father God, we pray that you would speak to us today through your word. We pray that you would show us more of who you are, of what your kingdom looks like. Stir our hearts to respond to you today. Amen. Well, the theologian George Ladd defines the kingdom of God as the dynamic reign or kingly rule of God and the sphere in which that rule is influenced. That's quite a a big statement to get your head around. So I'm going to say it again. The kingdom of God is the dynamic reign or the kingly rule of God and the sphere in which that rule is, is experienced. 
And the kingdom of God wouldn't have been a new concept to Jesus' audience at the synagogue. Because it's something which first century Jews had been eagerly anticipating for hundreds of years. An earthly king to deliver them from Roman rule and to establish a kingdom in which they would experience and live under the blessing and protection and fullness of life that had been promised to them as God's chosen people. So it wouldn't have been surprising for Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, to start talking about the kingdom of God. What might have been unexpected, though, was what he compares the kingdom to. Because to a crowd waiting expectantly for a powerful king to show up, Jesus instead says that the coming of the kingdom of God on earth is going to look more like a tiny mustard seed growing into a tree. It's going to look more like a house house cook mixing some yeast through a bowl full of flour. Forget royalty, forget earthly kingdom making and military defeat of the Roman Empire. These are pictures of first century Palestinian village life. They're unexpected and they're borderline underwhelming. In a world which places so much value on power on success, on greatness, and on being impressive. But these values of the world play out in so many different ways of our lives, don't they? You see them when you look at uh, pretty much everyone's LinkedIn profile, their online CV of all of their achievements, which everyone can look at, their um, recruiters, colleagues, old school friends. A LinkedIn profile is full of your list of achievements, your successes, the milestones, the deliverables you've achieved. It mentions none of your professional mistakes or weaknesses. It's all made to make you sound as impressive as as possible. And I remember when I left my job um, in the civil service to come and intern at St. Mark's. One of the things I thought was, I wonder what on earth people are going to think when they see my LinkedIn profile update, when they get that notification. All those people who uh, I've only ever met once or twice, what are they going to think when I update my profile to say that I've taken an internship at a church of all places? And when colleagues asked why I was making such a big change, I try to answer to make it sound as impressive as possible, to explain why this bizarre move to intern at St. Mark's would actually feed into my career and my long-term professional goals. I was so fixated on worldly values, so driven by them. But I love that in a world which places so much value on reputation, on things looking good, on the impressive, on worldly success, God chooses to work and he chooses to establish his kingdom in an unexpected and underwhelming way. So why does Jesus pick these two unusual analogies? What do they show us about the kingdom of God? Well, firstly, the parable of the mustard seed shows us that the kingdom of God is actively growing. You might have seen some of these mustard seeds on the screen in your kitchen cupboards. They really are very, very small. But if we see the next picture, this is a mustard tree fully grown. And when I saw this picture on Google, I was Googling extensively because I was trying to, even then I was trying to find a really impressive looking picture of a tree 
to wow you all. But it looks a little bit like scruffy. Um, but there you go, it's a mustard tree. And that's what Jesus was comparing the kingdom of God to. It would have grown to between six and 20 feet tall. And its branches would have provided shade and shelter from the scorching heat for any number of birds. And in the same way, from the smallest, most humble of beginnings, the kingdom of God grows and it expands and it reaches out, providing shelter and protection for those who make their home in it. You see, Jesus' audience at the synagogue were mistakenly waiting for a, a physical kingdom on earth to live in, an earthly king to defeat the Roman Empire. But God's kingdom is spiritual. His kingly rule and his kingly reign on earth is in heaven. And it's experienced by those who live under his rule until one day in the future when it will be come in its fullness, physical and spiritual, and extend over all creation. It's an unlikely mustard seed beginning of a kingdom, a baby born in a stable in an obscure part of the Middle East who grows up to be a carpenter and then a traveling rabbi who has only a handful of fishermen, tax collectors, and women as his followers, who teaches, performs miracles, and proclaims the imminent arrival of the kingdom of God for only three years before he's arrested and crucified. But through Jesus' death on the cross, the future reign of God breaks into the present. Sin and death are conquered once for all as Jesus takes the punishment for our sin that we deserve and makes a way for us to enter and abide in the kingdom of God. This is good news, isn't it? This is the gospel, a message, a story of good news for each one of us. And this gospel spreads rapidly as people pass it on from town to city, across borders and regions, in the face of extreme persecution and opposition. Against all the odds, this tiniest mustard seed of the kingdom of God grows and it grows and it grows. 3,000 people are filled with the Holy Spirit in one day at Pentecost. At the end of the first century, there are just under 10,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. By the year 200, this number's increased to just over 200,000 Christians. By the year 250, it's more than a million. And by the year 300, just two generations later, historians estimate that there were about 6 million Christians in the Roman Empire. My numbers don't go much beyond that, but we know that this trajectory continues, doesn't it? Because there are about 2.2 billion Christians in the world today. And that is a phenomenal number to get your head around. It's, it's too hard to kind of imagine almost. But we're still seeing kingdom growth today. Around the world, and even here in the UK and in London, Despite opposition and against a narrative of decline, churches are being planted and people are being baptized into the kingdom of God. Someone who did Alpha recently here at St. Mark's said that they hadn't been to church since they were a child, but that on week three of Alpha, they let Jesus into their life and they felt totally different since. 
God's kingdom is growing here. But the worst thing that we could do in the light of this parable is to become complacent. To think that if the kingdom of God's growing, then that doesn't matter whether I tell people about my faith or not, because it's going to grow anyway. Jesus' picture of kingdom growth doesn't get us off the hook. No, it encourages us in our mission to go out and make disciples of all nations. This is Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God, and he invites us to be a part of bringing it about. That's our calling as Christians. And all of this is backed up by the parable of the yeast, which tells us that the kingdom of God will reach and impact the whole world and every part of our lives too. Jesus compares the kingdom of God to yeast mixed through about 30 kilograms of flour. That's, that's a lot of bread making going on there until it works all the way through the dough. And this is significant because the very nature of yeast is to act as a catalyst, causing change in the things that it's mixed into. There is no part of the dough that the yeast doesn't reach and doesn't impact. And in the same way, there's no part of you, of me, of our church, of our neighborhoods, of our society, our culture, our nation, and of our world that God doesn't want to be reached impacted and changed by the gospel. We know that one day those who are living in the kingdom of God will see the fullness of this because Jesus promises to return and establish a new heaven and a new earth over which he reigns. But even now it's God's intention that every part of our life is influenced when we enter his kingdom rule. And as we begin to experience in this world something of what his final kingdom reign will be like. When I became a brownie aged seven, along with the new uniform that I got, those lovely brown clots and yellow jumper, uh, I don't know who designed those, I had to recite the brownie promise. Who else remembers that? I promise to do my best to love my God, to serve the queen and my country, and to help other people and to keep the brownie guide law. I almost remembered it, but not quite. I even got a badge to put on my sash to prove that I was a brownie, to show off my new identity to people. And when someone becomes a citizen of a different country, they also have to renounce their previous citizenship and submit to the rules and the laws of the new country which they're living in. And in the same way as these things, when we become citizens of the kingdom of God, we renounce our previous identity and our old way of living. We put on this new identity and we submit to living under God's rule. That means holding everything out in front of us and saying to God, have your way. Your kingdom come, your will be done. He rules over everything in our lives. So we offer up our relationships, our careers, our ambitions, our gifts and our weaknesses. We offer up our hopes and our dreams, the habits which we get stuck in, 
our resources, our finances, we offer up our deepest longings and desires. We relinquish our rule and renounce our own kingdoms and invite God's kingdom rule in every part of our lives. But if the parables of the mustard seed and of the yeast tell us that the kingdom of God is growing and that we should expect it to influence every part of our lives, then so what? What does that actually mean for our tomorrows when we get up, when we go to work, when we spend the day with our family, whatever we're doing tomorrow? How does it actually translate? Because I'm sure you might feel the same in that this vision of the kingdom of God can feel very far from our day-to-day reality. Our experiences of plucking up the courage to talk about faith with one of our friends. The constant tussle we experience between God's kingdom and our own kingdoms, which we can't seem to see breakthrough in. What are we actually supposed to do tomorrow morning when we get up? Well, firstly, we need to keep praying. If we want to see kingdom growth, we know we need to get on our knees. We know this, don't we? We see it time and time again in the Bible, in Scripture, in church history. Prayer must precede revival. We've got to keep praying if we want to see kingdom growth. Justin Welby says, without prayer, there'll be no renewal of the church. And without a renewal of the church, there is very little hope for the world. At the home of John Wesley, the 18th century founder of the Methodist movement, which has since had global reach, beside John Wesley's bed, there are two impressions in the carpet where it's said that he spent hours and hours on his knees in prayer, praying for England's social and spiritual renewal. And I almost didn't want to mention John Wesley in the context of prayer and and what we can do, because the idea kind of, I feel like I'm so far removed from where John Wesley is in prayer that it's almost, it's hard to relate to and it's hard to see kind of how we can respond when we see someone like that who's so faithful in prayer. But I find it so reassuring that a bit later on in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea and it will obey you. God will bring growth. He may even bring revival if we're committed to praying to see it. It might not look like much to start with. It might be the mustard seed beginning, but he chooses to work through the tiniest seeds of faith. It feels like we're on the cusp of something here at St. Mark's. I think in terms of this, with our vision and our prayer for this year to help people come home to God. And it's been so exciting to hear some of the testimonies and the stories coming through from you guys in that. And in particularly in our time of prayer, which we had a few months ago, uh, during Thy Kingdom Come, where we prayed every day at 14.23 for three of our friends. To hear the stories coming out of that time of prayer, those, I think it was three or four weeks that we did it together as a church, chance encounters with those people we were praying for. After months or years of not seeing them, breakthrough in conversations, 
One person in the congregation was praying specifically for his daughter who lives in Russia with his ex-wife. And in the last couple of months, they've completely, out of the blue, decided that they had a feeling they need to move back to the UK. And he's been so encouraged to keep praying for them, to come to know Jesus, convinced that God's doing something there. Another person in the congregation was praying for one of her friends, a professional rugby player who had told her previously that he just saw his life as totally incompatible with following Jesus. But after a month of praying for him every day, she happened to bump into him on the street as he was on his way back from going to church for the first time in over 10 years. And since then, he's gone to church almost every week. He's invited his friends to go to church with him. And he's started conversations and conversations about faith and God in their friendship group. God's kingdom is advancing in London and here in Battersea. We're going to be picking up 1423 prayer again as a whole church in the run-up to our next Alpha course, which starts in September but don't these stories make you want to start praying now? And actually, if you have been praying and you've kept praying, don't these stories bring encouragement where maybe you've not seen the fruits of those prayers yet? Keep praying. Who are you praying for? How deep are the impressions in your carpet from kneeling before your heavenly Father in prayer? We also need to take the long view. We know, don't we, that God's kingdom won't be complete over all creation until Jesus returns again and reconciles all things to himself. And so until then, we are going to experience opposition and setbacks and persecution alongside growth and advance of the kingdom of God. And maybe actually you're feeling that today facing spiritual attack or opposition to your faith, absence of breakthrough in a situation you've been praying for or a person you've been praying for, lack of fruit from seeds you've so faithfully been watering. We live in this tension of the now and the not yet of the kingdom of God. The battle has been won and Jesus has the victory, but we're watching the aftermath of that play out which is why it's so important to have the right perspective, to keep the long view. We know the end of the story. So when we're feeling weary and defeated, we can hold on to the victory which Jesus has won for us and look forward to a time when God's perfect rule and his perfect reign and the fullness of life which comes with that will extend over all creation And in the meantime, we can keep inviting God's rule into our lives. We can keep kneeling before the king, holding our relationships, our dreams, our hopes, our ambitions, our fears, our desires before him. Saying your kingdom come, your will be done. How do we know what God's kingdom will look like in each of these things, though? Maybe God's already beginning to stir in you kind of a sense of one of them in particular, being somewhere which you currently rule, but which he wants to rule over. What does his rule look like? 
gospel to know what it looks like, we go back into his word because it's full of promises and it's full of instructions for us. We approach him in prayer and we ask for the Holy Spirit to reveal his will to us. And when we sense our own kingdoms, our selfish desires, um, wanting to rule, we ask for God's help to turn away from them, to keep living under his rule because we know we can't do that ourselves. But also we know that we live in the power of the Holy Spirit who is the dynamic power of the coming kingdom of God. And I think that living that way, living this way could make our tomorrows look different. For me, I know that uh, if I want to live this way, it will start as soon as my alarm clock goes off first thing in the morning because my kingdom says to me, snooze that alarm, have a lion, you deserve it, you had a busy Sunday. But God's word says that he delights in my prayers and that I should store up his word in my heart. And I know that the morning is actually the best time for me to pray and to read his word before I'm distracted by other things happening throughout the day. And so if I want to experience more of God's kingdom rule in my life, then I know I actually need to get up when my alarm goes off and make spending time with him a priority. My kingdom will hate that. I'm so not a morning person. But I serve a new king now. What could your day look like tomorrow? By holding it out before God and inviting his rule and his reign by saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. It might change the conversations that you have. It might change your attitude towards your work. It might change what you read and what you watch on TV. It might affect who you speak to. You might speak to that person who you'd usually rather avoid speaking to. It might change the way we pray. It might change who we pray for. It might change our thought processes and those habits which we just fall back into time and time again. It might change how we engage with our colleagues. It might change what we say when they ask us what we did at the weekend. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which grows into a life-giving tree. And we can look forward to the big things that God might want to do in our lives, in our society, in our culture, in our nation. But we also know that he loves to work in the small things, the seemingly insignificant and underwhelming. So let's start today by inviting him into our Mondays. Why don't we respond by doing that now? Why don't we stand together and pray for God's kingdom to come? in our tomorrows. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us what it could look like for his kingdom to come, his will to be done tomorrow and the next day and the next. Let's ask for his help where we feel the temptation to build our own kingdoms, where we want to make ourselves kings and queens instead of living under his rule. And maybe as we pray together now, as a sign of saying, yes, God, I want that. I want you to reign in my life. Maybe you want to put your hands out in front of you, offer whatever it is that you need to. 
up to him. Give it to him. Ask him to rule. And so let's pray together now. Lord, have your way.